Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. In 2015, I set out to write a book about grocery stores because I couldn't figure out where all that food was coming from. The reporting gave me a deep appreciation for the grocery store. How could we take such a miracle of commerce, one relied on to feed our families, for granted? I wanted people to see them for all that they were, how they operated, and I wanted to know how in the heck I could get pea pods pretty much any day of the year, not just at my store, but at any grocery store in Ohio, or California, or Florida, or Oklahoma for that matter. Grocery, the Buying and Selling of Food in America was published in May 2017, three years ago this month. Little did I know that I'd have reason to revisit the whole idea of the grocery store in a new light, in the scary light of a pandemic. Now a grocery store is not only our main resource for food in quarantine, it's also a potentially dangerous place because so many have to go there. And some people don't wear masks. I quarantine with four others. I'm the designated shopper, and it can be an unnerving experience. Grocers know this, and thankfully, not only for their customers, but more for their employees or associates, they work to keep everyone safe. But having watched all the chicken and eggs disappear from my stores here in Providence, Rhode Island, not to mention the paper products and erratic supplies of milk and eggs, I wanted to find out how grocery stores were faring. So I called my friend Tom Heinen, who, with his brother Jeff, run Heinen's the grocery store of my Cleveland childhood, and the store that anchors the narrative of my book. In Cleveland, Heinen's is revered for the quality of its stores and its products and general friendliness. The small family-owned chain is every bit as excellent as Wegmans, if you know that store. How is our food supply? 
How are the health of those stores? How have they handled the pandemic? And what does the future hold? I also checked in on my friend, Chef Brian Polson, co-author of our book, Charcuterie, and instructor of charcuterie and butchery at Schoolcraft College. He not long ago got out of the restaurant business, is cooking from home for his wife and four of his five kids. So he's using the grocery store as never before. How does the chef use the grocery store? How does he cook at home? But first, I spoke with Tom Heinen by telephone. Tom's grandfather started Heinen's in Cleveland in the 1930s, and it's since grown to two dozen stores throughout northern Ohio, and recently several in Chicago. Perhaps not surprisingly, the biggest problem for this grocery store was not supply and delivery. It was a fact that they have 3,000 associates in contact with 200,000 customers every week. So what are your biggest challenges? It's making sure that we have enough people to work. We have been very generous in allowing people to take personal leave if they're uncomfortable. Our entire company is 3,500 people and probably 3,000 operate in stores. And so we have 500 people that are on leave out of that group. And we, over time, have hired 300 temporaries. So right now, we're able to staff our stores. And the longer the temporaries are there, the more accomplished they become. But our biggest risk is if we had an outbreak and, you know, we had to quarantine an entire store somewhere, we have to shut down. And then the second biggest challenge is simply supply chain. So proteins until initially have been a non-issue for us. Now, part of that is we're fairly unique in the sense that we are a single source beef, pork, and chicken company. The main line of beef, pork, and chicken all come from one vendor. Why did you do that initially? We did that because our strategy is to be program-based. So meaning that all the genetics of everything we work with, the feed regimens, are all tightly controlled. So that delivers the highest quality product in terms of flavor and tenderness. And it's, we've been doing this really since 1997. And as long as they stay in business, we're good. But if, for example, I mean, I talked to our beef supplier and he has 800 people, plus or minus, working in his plant. And they had an outbreak of nine people who drive together. So no big shock that they all might get COVID-19, but people started to drop like flies, and finally he rallied his troops, and, you know, he and his production manager were down working on the line to get production done and, and really lead by example. He brought in medical professionals to talk to the team. He had every single person there tested. That's no small task. Now, he's in Raleigh, California, so the ability to get him tested there, and plus California's been very proactive. So he's been very proactive in general. And, you know, just recently, as you've probably read, Sioux Falls, they had a pork plant shut down. Tyson shut down 15% of their pork capacity to plant. So it'll be very interesting to see where these really major meat and poultry processors, if they start shutting down these huge plants, you're going to see a shortage. And they allege you're going to see prices rise. Now, I don't quite see why prices would rise because... The reality is the chicken, the hog, and the cattle, they still need to come to market. You can play with it for a week or two, but nobody who's raising these animals and chickens 
wants to hold on to these more than they have to. When it's time to be harvested, they need to be harvested to get their return. So I'm not quite sure why prices would rise, because it certainly won't be based on supply side. It would only be somehow that processors took advantage of the market saying we can't, you know, maybe it's because lots of plants have to absorb the overtime and the cost of producing much, much more product. But but this is a very recent development. Produce has been basically uninterrupted. Our interruption has occurred on the dairy side, yogurts, eggs, a huge issue before Easter. Why is dairy an issue? I think really it's the same reason the grocery area is. I mean, people are shopping and cooking because there's no other choice right now, right? Every, all the restaurants are closed. You can do takeout, but... The vast majority of people, all of our sales would indicate that people are cooking at home a lot. He's going to say your sales must be high. Sales are high. How much high? Like by what percentage? Overall, we're probably in the 30 to 40% range. Hmm. But we have certain departments that are leading frozen, huge. Meat, huge. Prepared foods down 60, 60%. Down. Nobody is buying prepared foods. But the amazing thing is baking. We have struggled like everybody else to keep flour and yeast in our stores. Huh. And I mean, baking is something that is very seasonal. And toilet, you know, everybody knows that toilet paper and paper towels, what we call the paper items, we still can't get anywhere near constant supply. And I have no idea what everybody's going to do with all the toilet paper that's been sold. <laughs> it, is, it is utterly, utterly incredible to me. I mean, I don't know how much toilet paper you have in your house, Michael, but I'm telling you, our customers have to have months of supply of toilet paper right now. <laughs> months. Six months. I mean, it can't, we can't keep it on the shelf. And so it's, it's just an odd, odd time. But the big categories are, of course, cleaners, sanitizers, paper items, paper towels, toilet paper, flour. And, you know, the big paper suppliers, they just can't catch up. I don't really understand why, especially, you know, on the food side, all of our protein companies, 40% of their business was in food service. Right. So they really have shifted. They have the numbers to make up for retail. Um, it really answers to the whole food at home and food away from home ratio that once the food away from home went away, it all went into food at home. Mm -hmm. We're doing what I think 90% of the supermarkets are doing in terms of creating a safe experience. It starts at the front door where we have a limited occupancy. Most of our stores are somewhere around 100 to 80 people. And that excludes people working there. Mm -hmm. So we count the people in, count the people out. We have put shields on re all the registers to block, basically, sneeze guards, if you will, mm -hmm. on all the registers. We put uh, social distancing tape on the floor so everybody's six feet apart. How are your employees? How do you ensure their safety? And what's the mood among them? I mean, obviously, 500, the mood wasn't very good. They chose to leave. But the mood of the people who have stayed, I mean, I communicate this all the time. They're the unsung heroes. Absolutely. For the most part, we have very dedicated, loyal people. And... I mean, number one, sometimes they're working because they need the money and they can't afford to be out of work and be on leave. But the vast majority of our people are working because I believe they understand they're working for a higher purpose, which is if they don't feed the communities we trade in, those people don't eat. They know they're doing important work. And oh, the real problem is if we were to ever close a store, everybody's like, oh, you close a store. That's not a big deal. I said, yeah. It is because the other supermarkets honestly can't afford to have a burden of a store in the market close. It's just way too many shopping trips. By the way, the third biggest challenge, 
was the adjustment to online delivery. And Instacart is our third-party partner, and they have just flooded our store with shoppers who do not align to Heinen's values. What does that mean? I'm not sure I understand. They're just rude. They're inconsiderate of other shoppers. And the business in, on, in Instacart has grown five times. Hmm. And the amount of shopping trips, we've tried different things, shut off some stores that were overwhelmed. We were getting 500 shops a day at certain stores. You know, it was really, in some of those stores, they got up to be 40% of the volume in a given day. They're still representing between 15 and 20% of our volume right now for the company. And we're a little overwhelmed by them. And Instacart's not doing a great job of selecting or managing the type of experience that our people are having with them. So it's been a big challenge for us. Now, having said that, it's a necessary evil because the vast majority of people that these shoppers are shopping for are our customers. Right. Who are scared to death about going out. And, you know... We skew older to begin with as a company and in our neighborhoods. So, yeah, we have a lot of people who are like, I'm not going out. I'll take delivery. How about from a food standpoint? What's the long-term impact on food? You've talked about protein, beef, pork, chicken is going to be fine, provided the factories can operate and have the people to run them. Yeah, I, I think the issue is all on the people side. None of this is a food safety issue, right? I, I do think I, I'll make one exception. I think from a merchandising standpoint, I alluded to this earlier, I think the salad bars and the open food bars are going to be diminished in volume. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think people are just skeptical. But as far as the farmers, the ranchers, it really comes down, can they keep their people healthy and virus-free? And that's really the risk to the food supply is whether they have people to do it. There's no risk to the actual ingredients in food. Why did they have pictures in the New York Times of big fields of onions that had to be plowed under and things like that? I didn't see the article, but the only reason that would be would be because they could not harvest them. They didn't, couldn't get people to harvest them. So it's not, it's not a distribution issue. We haven't had a distribution issue. Now, look, over time, that's a great question, because over time, if you can't get truckers to drive, then yeah, of course, it'll be a distribution issue. I'm just telling you that we've had zero trucking issues. We've never had anybody say to us, the reason you're not getting your product is because of trucking, and particularly on the fresh side. You know, the vast majority of food is processed in rural America, and therefore, you would think that they would be at way less risk than urban settings. And so, you know, the farms, the meat processing plants are always in the middle of nowhere. So you would think that that people part is at less risk. Now, having said that, look, Sioux Falls closed down, Tyson Plant just closed down. It's like, well, maybe not. And I actually think the grocery industry has been incredibly responsive to making their customers as safe as possible and the associates. The people we concern, we have to really worry about as our associates who are there every day. Right. They're the ones who are at the most risk. You know, our shoppers are shopping back to shopping once a week. Mm-hmm. And I've talked to people and they'll say, oh, you know, have you thought about putting those sneeze guards up? I'm like, well, yeah, we put them up a week ago. When were you last in there? Mm-hmm. Oh, I was last in there a week ago Sunday. Uh-huh. I was like, okay, well, you know, we were in an environment where people normally shop two to three times a week minimum. Right. People literally are, you know, we see the baskets way bigger, shopping trips way down. So we've done, I think the grocery industry has done a really nice job doing what we can do. I, I think so too. I just want to make sure I understand this. One, our food is safe and plentiful as it always was. How is produce generally? Everything good? Delivery is good? You know, produce is probably the one department 
that has been most uninterrupted. Really, we've had product throughout. There's been some product dumped on the market just because people overproduce probably for food service. Right. But in general, the one department that's always looked normal is produce. What do you see long-term if this carries on and we remain isolated through, say, June? Well, first of all, in the grocery store business, we're dramatically impacted by what happens to restaurants. Right. But I think most people, and I believe this, that even when restaurants open, you know, they're going to be probably in some type of 50% occupancy only, social distancing, and people are going to be worried about going out in crowds again if they don't have to. So I think it'll be a slow recovery. Somebody said, oh, yeah, well, they're going to open the bars and there's going to be no tables. You're going to have to stand up and you're going to have to be six feet apart. You know, Michael, can you imagine you and me standing in a bar, <laughs> drinking our scotch, yelling at each other from six feet apart? Like, who the hell would do that? Who would do that? So I, I, I just decided that can't possibly be true. But I think, you know, people are going to be slow to return. Now, at the end of the day, people go to work. And they're going to need prepared food again. And they're going to start looking for the solutions they always got. They might look for it in a package versus a service setting. I mean, those are things we have to work through. But sooner or later, the world will return to semi-normal relative to people's purchasing patterns. One of the really interesting things is, you know, I think we're a rather thankless job, right? People take grocery stores as a, for granted, and mm -hmm. I get why. But our customers have overwhelmingly thanked our associates for That's being there and, and well, they're, being they're starting yeah, to realize like, how you know, important grocery stores are. Absolutely, and I'm like, oh, it took me only took forty two years for that to happen for me. That's good. You know, the bottom line is, grocery stores is we're just a middleman. We're a middleman between the farm and the ranches and the customer. You can't shut down, and a lot of people know that, and they know that the workers are are to some degree at risk of getting sick by doing their job. I know I'm really appreciative when I go to the store and I thank them certainly a lot more than I used to. Well, uh, I'm glad that our food supply is in good hands um, and that we're not in danger of running out of food and that the grocery industry is so strong and well-organized. And um, I'm glad you're finally getting the appreciation you, find, you, you, know, you deserve. Everything I say is very, with a big caveat because all the things you asked about, trucking, people, you know, and plants, it could totally change tomorrow. So this has been the most fluid environment a business could ever go through because the rules of the game and the expectations changed virtually daily. Mm. I mean, don't forget, the CDC came out and said, don't wear masks, no need to wear masks. For weeks, they right. said that. Ten, like 10 days ago, they shifted totally. They did a 180 and said, no, we think you ought to wear masks now. Who, who saw that coming, right? Tom, thank you so much for talking about this. I really appreciate it. Good talking to you personally. And it's, as you know, I'm fascinated by this, this whole industry and the business and, and at a time when it's never been more important. So I, thank you so much for taking the time to um, talk. Well, you're very welcome. And as always, Michael, it's a pleasure. And please stay safe. A week after speaking with Tom, while putting this episode together, I checked back in with him. He emailed back the following. Things have changed some. More meat plants have closed, causing shortages. Our beef plant is operating and filling all our needs, and our pork plant is filling most of our needs. Pork tenderloins have been shorted the last several weeks, but the rest of the pork has been solid. The meat plants that closed are starting to reopen but I think there will be a strain on the supply side through June, which means prices will go up. 
Indeed, along the lines of what Tom said, the New York Times published an article last week about the biggest hog producers having to euthanize hundreds of thousands of hogs because the meatpacking plants or slaughterhouses couldn't take them, which underscores one of the unseen benefits of the Heinen's single-source program, which are necessarily smaller, more humane, and higher quality than those relied on by companies like Smithfield and Wendy's. The egg market has stabilized, Tom went on, and there is no problem staying in stock on eggs right now. We raised our prices on eggs 90 cents per dozen, originally, but there have not been additional price increases for weeks. Flour and yeast are still in short supply, along with the paper items, toilet paper and paper towels. Sanitary wipes are continuing to be in short supply. Thank you again, Tom. Day by day, week by week. When we come back, I'll talk with chef and former restaurateur Brian Polson about his take on the restaurant industry and how he's shopping and cooking for a house full of hungry adult kids and what he sees for the future of the food business. place to show it. Book your family vacation at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. 
I've known Brian Polson first as a journalist writing about him in my book, The Soul of a Chef, and then as a friend and colleague, author of three books together, and as a sidekick in his two-day butchery classes around the country. He has led many of the best restaurants in the Detroit area, such as Five Lakes Grill and Forest Grill, but he really began his career in the mid-80s when he opened Pike Street in the blighted city of Pontiac, Michigan, where the only other open business was a pawn shop. And you know what happened? Within five years, Pontiac had become a thriving entertainment district filled with restaurants and bars. That is one of the little recognized powers of a restaurant. It changes neighborhoods. Well, Pike Street was the first restaurant that I was a partner in. It's where I made my bones, as we say in the uh, culinary world. And anyhow, that's where the buried bodies are. And I've really gained my Ph.D. level experience there. And a lot of things happened. You you like the story about Pontiac Bob. It was an urban environment, and there was a, a homeless person who pushed a shopping cart around with an American flag. And I kind of liked it. And I would talk to him all the time, and I said... Uh, we called him Pontiac Bob because it's the city that the restaurant was in. And uh, I built a smoker in the alley because I was young and broke and we didn't have any money. I built it myself and I smoked chickens out there. And one day I walked out the back door to check my smoker and there's Bob eating my smoked chicken. I go, what are you doing? He goes, I'm having lunch. <laughs> I, said, I said, come on in, I'll give you lunch, okay? <laughs> Don't eat my smoked chicken. Yeah, come on, you can eat with everybody else here. It's okay. So you know the restaurant business. And, you know, we're talking in the midst of a pandemic where the entire restaurant industry has been clamped down, locked down, nothing. What are your thoughts about all this? You know what I'm going to say. It's never going to be the same. Why? Uh, Why? I'm out of the restaurant business now, and uh, but I'm still closely in touch with it, of course. I mean, but I was just talking to my wife, Julia, about this the other day. And I said, you know, she gets anxious. And I said, Listen, in the 80s, when we had Pike Street, Detroit went through a major recession. The auto companies were going bad. Chrysler had to be bailed out by the government, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, in the Detroit market at that time, you were relying on the automobile industry. And we made it through that. And I told my employees, I remember having a meeting with them. And I said, we choose not to participate in the recession. People still have to eat. Okay, we got through that. So it was 88, 89, right? And then the 90s were pretty good. And then... Uh, Oh, what happened in 01? Well, 9-11. That was terrible for our country. And we bound together as a community. When that happened, we bound together. And that was bad for the restaurant business. That hurt. Okay, but this is, this is different. Brian, this is different. There's no going back to normal. There's got to be a new normal, which is what restaurant people do. You have to reinvent yourself. You have to be on your feet. You know, this is a red light. I'm waiting for the green light. There's always, every red light turns into a green light. Every single time. Sometimes it's long, sometimes it's short, but you have to be optimistic in the restaurant business. And, uh, you gotta be creative. Brian, I have to say that you're the first chef I've talked to who is optimistic. Deep down, all the people you've talked to, and I, I've listened to your other podcasts, and they don't sound Debbie Downers. They're like, shit, I just don't know what to do. I can be a little bit more, they're all optimistic. Every restaurateur, and every business person, I should say restaurateur, but every business person, every American for that matter, they're optimistic because that's what this country is built on. You are now quarantined in Michigan, in Highland, Michigan. You're cooking for six people. And I hear your kid, I mean, you told me earlier that your kids are not allowing you to shop because you're an old man and, and more susceptible to 
coronavirus. Right. First of all, tell me about, I mean, you've been out to the grocery stores. Tell me what you think of grocery stores now. What do you see? And especially because, you know, where's all this food going? And it's not going to the restaurants anymore. I think that prices are higher. I paid $1.25 a lemon. I paid $1.75 for one. This is Highland, Michigan, baby. This isn't New York or Connecticut or Rhode Island. This is, it's ridiculously high. Also, the meats. I mean, the first thing, you go to the meat car, I got I'm blessed with a very good market half a mile from my house. And I look at the counters and all the chicken's gone. Okay, you said you can't keep chicken in. All the ground meat is gone. He makes kebabs and marinates meat and stuff like that for people for kind of ready meal raw, but you take it home. But you know what? You know what's really full hmm. is the prime rib, the tenderloin, Delmonico steaks, New York strip steaks. All the expensive cuts are packed. Nobody's buying it because it's like 17 bucks a pound. And obviously he's got an abundance and there's abundance of that because the restaurants aren't buying it. The restaurants buy all those middle meats of the animal and the lesser cuts, less expensive cuts uh, might go to the consumers. Hmm. And I find that to be interesting. The produce has been very good for, in my market. Tell me um, how it works. Do you do you make the list and send them out? And like, what does your list look like? What do they come back with? How many times do they shop? Tell, tell me about the whole shop, the food gathering process. All right, so we're ready to do it again tomorrow. We do it about seven to nine days. And let me preempt this, is that I would go to the market four or five times a week, like in Europe. I got a beautiful store not far from it. I ride my bicycle down there. I got little saddlebags on there. I mean, in the summertime, I do that. And uh, I pick up what I need for a day or two, and that's it. It depends. If it's just me and Julia, I don't, you don't need to buy that much. But now with all of them, they've been here six weeks. So like six weeks ago, I was making, you know, restaurant-style food and uh, lots of sides and gratin potatoes and roasted Brussels sprouts and two different salads and all these accompaniments. And they were enjoying it. But then they realized this is a lot of food to eat every day, right? <laughs> so I said, what do you guys eat? You know, what do you eat? And they go, well, what? I don't know. So I said, well, let me come up with the meals that you guys like, and I'll write a little cookbook, and I'll send you home with it if you ever leave, that uh, these are simple meals you can do at home. So I've been taking my recipes that are in my head, and a lot of the dishes are things that they grew up with. This is a great subject. I'm very curious about because I think it's important that young adults learn to cook, learn to cook now, learn how to shop. And so tell me how you're doing that. So we, we, we stand around for the day or two, and I said, we need to do a shop on tomorrow, which is, what, Wednesday or Thursday? I don't even know what day it is. So I said, okay, think about it. What do you guys want? And we haven't repeated a meal maybe more than once. So the repertoire in six weeks is that 36 days, we've eaten at least 25 to 28 different meals. So I say, what do you guys want? Blah, blah, blah. They, they all bark things off. So I write, write down like the menu items and then that's how you make your grocery list. So I say, okay, I, I want four zucchinis, one, two eggplants, uh, Blah, blah, blah. I want an inventory of stuff, too. Right. Okay. So let me stop you there for a second. So the first thing you do is you write down your menu or the dishes that you want to have for the next seven days. Yeah. Well, yeah, I kind of get a rough menu in my head or on a piece of paper. I have one of them right in front of me, as a matter of fact. Read it. Chicken and rice. They like the chicken thighs and rice. I think I told you about that. Then they like uh, lemon chicken which is sauteed breast with garlic and lemon juice and white wine, and then I make a butter sauce for that. They like uh, mole, pozole. They like pho, fried rice, uh, potato dish, which is one of our family dishes, um, quesadillas, 
uh, grilled chicken. Roast, they love, well, the Brussels sprouts has been a big part of our menu because, you know, that's a vegetable that's in season. Everybody likes it. So tell me, well, you mentioned it. How do you make your Brussels sprouts? Well, two different ways. One, you know, I've got a built-in deep fryer at my house, so I'll just cut them into quarters and deep fry them, and they get all crispy. That's the way they like it the best. The second way is I saute uh, julienne onions with bacon, and I add the quartered Brussels sprouts to that, and I roast it in a 400-degree oven so they get nice and crispy. The trick to that is that you have to use the right size pan. You can't have the Brussels sprouts more than one layer, or else you end up with steamed Brussels sprouts on the bottom and browned on top, no matter how much you stir them. I did that the other day. I said, oh, just, you know, once again in cooking, there are no shortcuts. So I said, oh, man, I don't, the other pan's dirty. I don't feel like washing it. I'll just use this smaller pan, stack them up, roasted the Brussels sprouts, put them out there. And my audience said, uh, what'd you do different to the Brussels sprouts? How come they're not crispy? <laughs> I steamed them. So I, my mistake. answer was, my answer was poor pan selection. <laughs> And it was. It was It was a shortcut. I'm sorry. I did it. But you know what? I was like, I don't want to watch that freaking pan. Okay, back to the menu. So we do the menu, and I write a list. And um, they go to the store. They what they? what I mean, if I say flour, they don't need, or sugar, or whatever. They don't need to ask me about that. But when it gets to the meat counter and the vegetables, they'll FaceTime me, and they'll say, uh, what? And I say, ah, you know, those leeks, they look a little sorry. Don't forget the leeks. I'll change it. Interesting. Give me uh, four bunches of scallions instead. You know, the bok choy doesn't look great. Is there any Savoy cabbage? So we'll use the Savoy because that's a softer cabbage instead of the the bok choy we can use that in the stir fry or whatever and i'll look at it they, those are decisions they can't make the meat counter i mean the fish is what i really want to get but our, our poor market we're, we're having a, a short supply of good fish there's a lot of good frozen fish but i'm not a big advocate of that so we've been eating shrimp which of course all of it's frozen in this area that's been good i did a um, almost like a gentle south chicken thing the other day I dusted the shrimp in cornstarch and deep fried. They tossed it in the sauce. That was that was pretty tasty. And, uh, you know, so simple food, but wholesome and the right ratio. I mean, for me and my diet, I try to eat more vegetables, a little less carbs, and my protein's around four to five ounces at night. Once the food gets home, we've got a little system. I set up a six-foot banquet table in one of the bays of my garage, and we've got soapy water and rinse for, like, lemons and limes. You wash all the stuff, apples, that kind of stuff. And then we've been buying vegetables like cauliflower that are wrapped in plastic already, so that gets sanitized with a solution that Julia made, an all-natural, no-chemical anything. So everything gets washed. So then those people who brought the food in did all that, and I've got a big piece of tape, so all the... Stuff that came from the store stays on one side and gets sanitized, goes on the other side. Then the people that are in the house come in and take the sanitized food and bring it in to the kitchen. And then I put it away. I stay in the kitchen, so it's staged on the kitchen counter. I put it away. Then the people that went to the store with the masks and gloves, they strip in the laundry room. And they've got a bathrobe or something in there. They immediately go take a shower. Then they come back and they're back in our environment. So if they had picked something up, it has less of a chance of getting into the household. I am so glad to hear that, Brian. That is so smart. That is so what we need to do. It's not risk-free because something could get through. But all I'm saying is that we're we're not we. I, they were the ones. My kids are really, I mean, they're freaked out. You know, it's out of love. I mean, thank God I'm surrounded by kids who love me. So that's good. They were right to tell you that. I mean, as much as we'd like to think that, uh, you know, even if we got it, we'd be fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, it's too, uh, you don't know. You just don't know. Uh, we need to minimize risk. Oh, 
the food's inside, then I put it away. And, you know, the, the pantry stuff, you know, goes in the pantry and I organize the refrigerator and then I handle the uh, the maintenance of the food coming in. And, I mean, everybody can go in there and get whatever they want. You want to make a sandwich or whatever. I'm not going to do that for them. But uh, any leftovers I incorporate to the next day when I plan menus. Like I, I make chicken stock probably twice a week and uh, I use chicken legs or wings. Tell me about the stock. Do you make it traditionally or do you do it in the Instapot? Oh, yeah, I do it in the Instapot. So six quarts of water, 12 to 16 legs, one onion, two parts onion, one part celery, one part carrot, two bay leaves, 12 peppercorns, uh, a half a head of garlic cut in half with the skin and everything on there, put it in there. Instapot on uh, soup for one hour, comes out crystal clear, strain it off, twice i do it through a colander so i get all the liquid out that i can then the final strain is through a fine mesh strainer and uh, then i pick the meat off the bones and i'll let that cool and cool and either i use that meat for the for chicken soup or i make a chicken salad it's onions got, and celery mustard mayonnaise and because the chicken's overcooked anyhow it's got flavor still yeah yeah it's utilization is what the key is so if i'm not going to make chicken soup this week i'm not going to throw that meat away i'll do i'll go through that painstaking effort of picking the meat and the skin and all that stuff up that's enough for two or three sandwiches. So somebody can have a lunch with that. And I'll flavor it with mustard and celery and onions and fresh parsley so it tastes good. And uh, that's, that's a good way of utilization. I also try to plan my meals for if I'm doing something, I um, think about what's going to be left over. Although with these boys in the house, there's always there's not always a lot of leftovers. But I'll use, like, I'll grill off, you know, four zucchini and eggplant. I did this last night. I'll do this grilled vegetable medley with extra virgin olive oil and garlic and so on. with splash balsamic vinegar on it. And I'll serve that as kind of a warm vegetable side salad with uh, what we're eating, right? So then there might be some leftovers. So I chopped that up. And today for lunch, I made a chopped lettuce salad. I chopped those vegetables, hard cooked some eggs. Cut up a couple avocados, tossed it in with some romaine and some uh, bib lettuce, a vinaigrette on there, and that was uh, lunch. So constantly moving the inventory. So I'm in inventory management is my, <laughs> my thing because I'm buying a lot of fresh stuff. last thing I want to talk to you about is something that you said to me earlier on, which I really appreciate, um, is... How are you teaching your kids to cook? It's fun because when they were growing up, I really put a lot of effort into teaching them how to cook, and they hated it. It's like, come on, come on, let's do this. Oh, I don't want to do this. Roll your own pizza dough. Oh, I don't want to do this, baby. You know, you're 16, 17. The last person you want to hang out with is your father, right? Now I, I make fresh pasta, and they ask me, what are you doing there? I said, I'm using the double O flour from Italy. Why do you use that? I said, it's a finer grind, and it makes a better textured noodle. And I won't, I, because I, I'm a teacher too, right? So I don't go in too deep until they ask the questions. And then when we're eating it, they go, wow, this pasta is really light. I really see what you're talking about. So then next time I make pasta, I roll it, and I show them a different technique of rolling it all in one piece. Take one sheet, and I roll it, and I connect it together so it's a big circle. And I keep feeding it. And I had Ben keep, I said, turn it down to six, turn it down to five, turn it down to four. And I got one big circle, maybe three feet, big oval piece of dough that just keeps going through the roller, right? And uh, it was a lot of fun. So then I, they start cutting. So the first thing about how do I teach them is I have to see what their interest level is. And if they're interested, man, you know, I'm, <laughs> you know I can go all the way. Today, Alana said to me, um, we've been cutting out desserts because, you know, this diet thing and we've been eating so much. I don't want to gain any weight. So she looked up this recipe online or something. It's basically a lemon pound cake, but it uses almond flour. So she said, do you want to make it together? I said, yes. Yeah. I said, do the mise en place. And she knows what that is. Get all the ingredients scaled out. I said, let's go through the procedure. We, we cream the butter. 
We had the flour. We had the eggs one at a time, scrape it down. I said, you got to grate the uh, lemon zest because that's where the flavor comes from. Okay, that's, that's the important thing. So I try to find the important point of a recipe, like creaming, what does that mean? Lemon zest, what does that mean? You don't take any of the white stuff off, just the color, right? Just the zest, that's where the flavor is. The fifth is bitter. So I teach them those little nuances of cooking, and there you go. I mean, that's that's basically it. So we baked it, nine-inch springform pan. Uh, we did, it did have a sugar icing. I said, you know, sugar is kind of not good. Confectioner sugar and lemon juice, and you boil it, and then you poke holes in the cake so it absorbs into it. We poured it over the top. I said, we shouldn't be doing this because of the sugar. She said, ah, we can do it. <laughs> who doesn't, who doesn't want, who doesn't want a confectioner sugar icing on a, on a lemon cake, man? Come on. So we did it. And now it's sitting in the, in the kitchen right now. We're having it for dessert. It did say to serve it with the whipped cream and ice cream, which we're not going to do. There's no ice cream in the house mm-hmm. or whipped cream for that matter. Beautiful. Um, last question. Has the pandemic, the new situation at home and your cooking, has it changed how you thought about grocery stores? It has. The appreciation of the, of the especially the small grocery stores, the independent mom and pop cut places are critical because they hand pick things. And more importantly, well, not more importantly, but just as important are the small farmers, the farmers markets. Mm. These people live paycheck to paycheck, too, and uh, or hand to mouth, basically. A small farmer's market farmer will always have food to eat, but, uh, you know, they got an electric bill to pay and all that stuff, a car payment insurance and so on. And uh, the only way to make that situation survive, which is the only change in this country in the last 12 to 15 years, the farmer's market, really, it's only been 12 to 15 years it's really been popular. And popularity means you know, economic growth. And I got to encourage people to maintain that, do it, support the small community support. And it's said it thousands and thousands of times, but again, it can't be said enough. I'm sorry. You have to think about those kind of things. Social responsibility. Yeah. There's no silver bullet here. I wish, I wish I had one thing to say and you would say, Oh, Brian, that's beautiful. But I, I'm not saying anything that you haven't heard before your, or your listeners probably haven't heard before, but it can't be said enough. We've got to take care of each other and we've got to, you know, think about the green light because, you know what, we're at a stoplight. It's going to turn green sooner or later. we got to move forward. If you're not moving forward, you're moving backwards, and you can't move backwards. Yesterdays are not important right now. Absolutely right. Last question, Brian. What are you cooking for dinner tonight? Oh, tonight is grilled onions, poblano peppers, sweet peppers, you know, the red, yellow ones on the griddle. I've got a griddle on my range. And since I was talking to you late in the day, I asked everybody if it's okay if I can just grill chicken and make quesadillas. They were like, yeah, that's fine. So I made a little um, fajita dry rub and olive oil so the chicken's marinating right now. Grill the chicken breasts, quesadillas, wedges, sour cream, and then the roasted vegetables, you know, peppers and onions. That's the best thing to eat right now. Beautiful. That sounds good. Thank you, Chef Brian, for the glimpse into your home cooking and your thoughtful remarks on the restaurant industry. As you said, the light's going to turn green at some point. It always does. Thank you, Tom Heinen, for taking time to talk about the grocery business, which has never been more essential than it is today. I want to broadcast my personal thanks to every grocery store employee, every food retail store employee out there who, at risk, are making sure that we have food to put on the table. Thank you, one and all. We get through this pandemic together, not apart. This episode of From Scratch was engineered by Tom Heinen and Brian Polson. Thank you for that. From Scratch is produced by Jonathan Hawes Dressler. 
Our executive producer is Christopher Hasiotis. The music is by Ryan Scott off his album, A Freak Grows in Brooklyn. From Scratch is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. We're putting together a mini podcast right here we're calling From Home, in which chefs and food pros tell us about how they're faring during the quarantine and what they're cooking. Hope you'll have a listen. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.